then carried both sabres to the weapon rack at the side of the hall, where a tall, very thin and extraordinarily handsome captain in the red coat and blue facings of the 1st Regiment of Foot Guards was waiting. The guardsman, a stranger to Wilson, tossed away a half-smoked cigar as Wilson approached. "'You fooled him,' the captain said cheerfully. Wilson frowned at the stranger's impertinence, but he answered politely enough. Wilson, after all, was an employee in Horace Jackson's hall, and the guard's captain, judging by the elegant cut of his expensive uniform, was a patron. The sort of patron, moreover, who could not wait to prove himself against the celebrated Henry Wilson. "'I fooled him,' Wilson asked. "'How?' "'The cart bass,' the guardsman said. You made it soft. Am I right? Wilson was impressed at the guardsman's acuity, but did not betray it. Perhaps I was just fortunate, he suggested. He was being modest, for he had the reputation of being the finest swordsman in the dirty half-hundred, probably in the whole army, and maybe in the entire country. But he belittled his ability, just as he shrugged off those who reckoned he was the best pistol-shot in Kent. A soldier, Wilson liked to say, should be a master of his arms, and so he practised assiduously and prayed that one day his skill would be useful in the service of his country. Until that time came, he earned his captain's pay, and because that was not sufficient to support a wife, child, and mess bill, he taught fencing and pistol-shooting in Horace Jackson's Hall of Arms. Jackson, an old pugilist with a mashed face, wanted Wilson to leave the army and join the establishment full-time, but Wilson liked being a soldier. It gave him a position in British society. It might not be a high place, but it was honourable. "'There's no such thing as luck,' the guardsman said. Only now he spoke in Danish. Not when you're fighting. Wilson had been turning away, but the change of language made him look back to the golden-haired guards' captain. His first careless impression had been one of privileged youth, but he now saw that the guardsman was probably in his early thirties and had a cynical, knowing cast to his devil-may-care good looks. This was a man, Wilson thought, who would be at home in a palace or at a prize-fight. A formidable man, too, and one who was of peculiar importance to Wilson, who now offered the guardsman a half-bow. You, sir, he said respectfully, must be Major the Honourable John Lavisser. I'm Captain Lavisser, Captain and Major Lavisser said. The guards gave their officers dual ranks. The lower one denoted their responsibility in the regiment, while the higher was an acknowledgement that any guards officer was a superior being, especially when compared to an impoverished swordsman from the dirty half-hundred. "'I'm Captain Lavisser,' the Honourable John Lavisser said again. "'But you must call me John, please.' He still spoke in Danish. I thought we were not to meet till Saturday, Wilson said, taking off his fencing slippers and pulling on boots. We're to be companions for a fair time, 
Lavisser ignored Wilson's hostility, and it's better, I think, that we should be friends. Besides, are you not curious about our orders? My orders are to escort you to Copenhagen and see you safe out again. Wilson responded stiffly as he pulled on his red coat. The wool of the coat was faded, and its black cuffs and facings were scuffed. He strapped on his seven-guinea sword, unhappily aware of the valuable blade that hung from Lavis's slings. But Wilson had long learnt to curb his envy at the inequalities of life, even if he could not entirely forget them. He knew well enough that his captaincy in the dirty half-hundred was worth one thousand five hundred pounds, exactly what it cost to purchase a mere lieutenancy in the guards. But so be it. Wilson had been taught by his Danish father and English mother to trust.